Hi, I'm Chris Dukes, and I'm one of the podcast producers for Community Campfires 2022 from the Scottish Book Trust. 2022 is the year of Scotland's stories. We've been setting up camp in North Ayrshire, Inverclyde and Fife, as well as the Western Isles. In these places, we've been asking communities if they have a story to tell. We spend a few days interviewing people, and then on the final day, the community meets to hear not just the recordings, but live readings, films, photography and sounds from our digital storyteller. There's poetry and audience discussion. We also have Luke Winter's beautiful story wagon as a warm meeting point for local tales. In this first podcast, we partnered with North Ayrshire Libraries, I spent the week at Kilburnie Library in Garnock Valley and around Irvine, and we start with young writer Patrick Kennedy, who's just started to enter short story competitions. My name's Patrick Kennedy and I'm from Barhead. So there's this underground government facility and they've created like almost a biotoxin that as a gas that they're going to release into the city environment and they've covered it up like on the broadcasting messages they've covered it up as it being a cure for diseases but what it actually does is it's a parasite and it takes over your mind and gives you the urge to kill so it's almost like a zombie apocalypse starting so many just city falls into chaos people are dying like people are gathering up weapons and there's this group of six people who are out to stop just everything that's going on. Usually I write like horror mystery stories. In primary school uh, I have this teacher, Miss Sonino, she's definitely pushed me a lot and helped me to improve my writing. So when I started writing kind of horror stories, uh, she liked them and she, she was helping me, like giving me different words to use and then so what she did was she told me about a young writers competition for the BBC Radio 2 and I decided to write this story to enter with. I spent a good while with our next voice, Bill Henry, back at Kilburnie Library. He had some great stories about his cat and the local area, but he talks here about his father-in-law's dramatic life before moving on to a short vignette about his sister. My, my father-in-law uh, ended up in a nursing home, but prior to that, he had been a highly intelligent man. Clever, married, happy man. They went down on holiday to the borders, and his wife, my mother-in-law, who was a diabetic, fell and broke her hip. Eight months later, she was gone because if you're a diabetic and something like that happens to your legs, does you? So when she passed away, he took to the bottle, and I mean big time. And one of the times uh, we got a call from the local hospital, your father-in-law was found lying in his garden unconscious. So going back out, he was still drinking. I had to tell the local shop owner, stop selling Jimmy whiskey, you're killing him. Prior to that, during the war, he had been a navigator on Halifax bombers. And in '43, they got shot down south of Paris. He was on the run for three weeks, and eventually a French farmer gave him away to the Germans. 
Now, the German officer kept questioning him. Name, rank, serial number, name, rank, serial number. If you don't tell me what's in this report here, which I know, he said, I'll have to hand you over to the Gestapo and you will not like, like them. He says, left them fags and matches. He says, I'm going out for a cup of coffee. I'll be five minutes. We'll look at it. And Jimmy opened up the folder. They had everything on him, including his grandparents' names. So he said to the guys, right, you've got me. So he says, right, fine. And he was interned in a camp in Poland for 18 months. And uh, he used to get Red Cross parcels. And the Germans would bane at the tins so they couldn't keep them to try and escape. And eventually one day, they could hear the bombs and planes. The German guards came in and went, that way is the Russians. That way is the Americans. I think you should come with us because that's where we're going. We're going to go and surrender. And that was it. But... When he was in the nursing home, they got a new charge nurse, a lovely girl who was German, and he would not give her the time of day. <laughs> she was German, and that was it. Never a word he spoke to her <laughs> till the day he passed away. Yeah, it's funny. My sister and my brother-in-law, they both passed away. Uh, it was 1994, it must have been, yeah. They were in Paisley. My sister lived in Glasgow. She had a big house there. And they, they went into Paisley to get him a golf jumper because he was a great golfer. They got back to the house. My brother-in-law was taking his jacket off. My sister took her coat off. And she went, Harry, take my hand. He said, what's up, love? She said, I'm dying. And died in his arms. Omid Asak, who is currently living in Irvine, is an Afghan journalist who was forced to move his family to the UK when he was being targeted by, as he says, unknown people over the content of his writing. In the last two years, many Afghan journalists and publishers have had similar freedom of speech conflicts and have had to flee to pursue resettlement schemes. Here he talks about how he survived a suicide bomb blast in Kabul. You know about the one year ago about the situation of Afghanistan. It was clear for all. There was fight between the Taliban and government, and also the the war was different. No, just in one field between the media and insurgent, and also between the government and insurgent, and also a lot of journalists that the unknown people attacked. Uh, on them and kill them. Uh, they are killed by unknown people. There was a suicide attack, bomber. I stand with another driver, just bomb plastic. I watch the people, they are um, next to me in two meters. The, there was a, a poor driver person. I knew him. I watch him. He died yeah, next to me. When I stand, I watched my, 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 my right leg, it was broken, bone, this bone broken, and also my head was sharpened, different sharpened, blood, all of the blood. You know, we had a good chance. They had four, like this, I don't know what you say, four, four bump in, in his body, one in first, in this side, this side, in back. Just the first bump blasted, and this three one uh, left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was our chance, yeah. 
if those bombs had gone off, then you no, all finished, yeah, all finished. It was, it was very dangerous. Uh, you know about suicide attack. Uh, I had a friend. He messaged me, please care, please keep yourself. It is really danger for you. I asked him why, what I, what, what I did. Yeah, they killed me. He told me, you don't know about your writing. What you write in your Facebook, in newspaper, in daily, very famous newspaper published my writing, my article. Like me, a lot of young generation, young people try to change the situation of the people, try to, 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 to tell their people, uh, civilian people, it is not the holy war. Yeah? This is a project. We know about this. We study, uh, studied about the Afghanistan war. It, is, it was a project. Um, when I uh, studied my, my uh, past history, it, it, it was danger for us. Yeah. Should we sh show our reaction? Yeah. Should uh, uh, we say to our people about the reality of the, the, the war? It was danger for us. Next, we hear from one of our lovely storytellers, Betty Skelton, who I interviewed on a gorgeous day at Eglinton Country Park near Irvine. This is a very moving account of why she tells stories. And the first day we went in, um, I mean, there were people putting themselves up against the wall and cowering because this eight-year-old child, well, nine by that time, was back in the school. But anyway, we went into the classroom. The kids, kids are great. They, they accept everybody. Uh, and I says, so you're ready for a story? And he said, yes. I says, well, here's your storyteller. And he sat down in the storytelling chair. And he goes, so would you like a story? And he went, and he looked a bit confused, but said, yes. No, would you, would you really like a story? Yes. Would you really, really like a story? And they're going, yes! So he told um, the story of the three belly goats gruff with all the actions and all the movements and everything in it. And at the end of it, there was total silence. And he looked at me and I looked at him and we'd rehearsed every possible um, reaction hadn't considered that it would be so awed by the story that they wouldn't do anything and it went on just too long for my boy but they did lots of applause, they were cheering they were clapping, they were absolutely blown away by it um, but my another teacher was with me and she took him away because he couldn't cope he could, could have coped with them saying it was wrong, it was terrible, or anything else. They couldn't have, couldn't have cope with this adoration, adulation. Um, when I went up, back up to the base, he had swiped everything off every surface. He had books, paints, everything were in a big heap. And I walked into the classroom, and he looked at me came running, wrapped his arms round about me and the two years melted in a puddle of tears. Um, so that's why I tell stories. I hadn't, I mean, I'd always been aware of the power of stories. But that, 
was quite something again. Um, and when I retired, I joined the storytelling directory and have been telling stories for the last 12 years. The Men's Shed Project is a countrywide cluster of community spaces for men to connect, converse and create. Kilburnie has a thriving men's shed at the back of the library. It's more like a hub than a shed. Here, Colin, one of the users of the service, talks candidly as to why he thinks they are a lifesaver. It started when I had three close deaths in the family. And uh, as you do, you just work on and you work longer and longer hours. And what happened was my auntie had died and my mother, who I was really close to, died. And then my cousin, who was my auntie's boy, he died. But my brother and myself found him in his flat ten days after he died. And I think that was just a tipping point. Can a nurse took me in there to see how I was, because I'm a joiner. And the man said does a lot of building stuff and things like that joinery stuff and, uh, and I goes in oh, and as soon as I seen all the joinery stuff machines I was like oh aye but I still when he talked to him he went into the kitchen which was a social hub of the place and uh, I just sat in the corner <laughs> so I'm back at Manshed and uh, I get back in after the after the pandemic and Didn't realise he was going to need us. Uh, so I got back to the man's shed and we just made things, just painting, whatever, anything at all, as long as you were doing something. And uh, I get started to speak to people, like it was wee Fred that was there at the time, and now it's somebody else that's took over. And there was Afghan, a big guy called Afghan, Stuart. Uh, just people talking to you. So, if, if it wasn't for the men's shed, I don't think I'd actually be here. Because you just clam up and don't speak to any. And now we're back open again with the man's shed. And the uh, sun's out today, which is really good. And I'm just happy to be here. Really happy. Although it might not sound like it. Merry Mass is a festival held in Irvine every year. The name refers to Mary Queen of Scots and it is celebrated for around a week in mid-August. It's a huge event and we hear from Laura Kerr uh, who describes that despite the festival having many partners and volunteers, not to mention thousands of attendees, there's still room for it to be a family affair. So one person who is known as Mr Miramis actually is Danny Kerr. So Danny has been involved in the festival since he was a young boy. He's now in his 60s. And we always joke and laugh that he has played every role 
except a major eight. So he has done absolutely everything in the festival except dance. He has dedicated... He's dedicated many, many years to the festival. I have never known him to take a holiday between April and August ever because he's so busy on the the run-up to the festival. He coordinates the creation of the community floats. So there is a a group of really dedicated older gentlemen who work throughout the year dismantling the, the floats from the previous year and you know, building a, a strong base for the community groups to come in and decorate the, the floats. He has, he, he's been known as Mr Minimus for many years um, as it completely absorbs him and he, he puts so much into the festival, yet a lot of people aren't aware um, of how much work he does put in. And I think my involvement in the festival um, has has. I'm I'm in a really fortunate position as I've been involved in the festival since I was very, very young. I've been in the parade since I was four or five years of age. I've always been involved in the background, you know, of of helping where I could um, and, you know, putting horses and carts in the parade and decorating um, as well as being an extra pair of hands on the moor on Minmouth Saturday um, from quite a young age doing, doing what I could to help. But Danny's actually my dad. So it's a real, it's a real family thing for us. So our whole family, every year since I can possibly remember, have been involved in the festival. Um, my mum has never formally been in any group or organisation. She's very much a driving force in the background. So she does all the running about. She does the collection of things, things like the rosettes. She drives to Girvan to collect every year. Um, she's she's very dedicated, but again, there's so many volunteers behind the scenes that allow that to happen. I love this next story from Kilburnie gallery owner Adam McLean, who used to have his gallery shared by the barbers. Um, he's now next door, and he has a unique, enormous Mona Lisa on the gable end of his space, which is also his office. He describes how this unique art installation came about. After a couple of years, I bought a gallery, uh, a a shop to use as a gallery. And um, things went very well. We got a few interesting exhibitions. And then one day, a young guy, well, he was not that young, actually, he was about 40, came into the gallery and said, he took out his phone and said, I'm an artist, I've done the painting. And of course, you know, your heart sinks sometimes when this happens because people get out their phones and they show those really poor quality paintings and you have to kind of just be nice to them. But he took this pa- he took the phone out and the painting was really incredible. And even on this small thing, it was it was uh, uh, the screen of the of the phone. I was quite impressed by it. So I said, "Oh, Tom, I'd love to come and, and see that sometime." He says, "Oh, no problem. I'll bring it down." I said, "Oh, don't go to any bother." He says, "I'm only two hundred yards up the road." So he brought the, <laughs> this big canvas down, and I was just blown away by it, shocked by it actually, because Tom was. You know, he wasn't a trained artist, but this was incredibly detailed, painstaking work, taking him two years to paint. It was incredible. So 
I knew about that. I offered him an exhibition, but he didn't have any other paintings at the time. So what happened was a couple of years later, 2019, I was thinking about um, putting some kind of mural up on the wall, on the gable end of our property. And um, I thought about what could we do, what could we do? And suddenly it just came to me, Tom's painting's perfect local person with a universal theme of the Mona Lisa. And what he'd done was he'd taken the uh, Mona Lisa by Leonardo da Vinci, best-known painting in the world, obviously, and he'd um, copied the face and the body roughly, uh, but then he just went a riot of exploration of different forms and things, and he'd added all this decorative material around around the, the, the central figure. And it's just, just amazing. Willie Craig is an ex-steel worker, and he ends our selection today with this childhood memory. I was born in Bees, and uh, when I was a toddler... Even before I started school, um, I remember when you're playing in the pavement outside, there was some evenings, the sky would all light up. It was absolutely the whole sky lit up, just like a flash come up, and it was all lit up. And it, well, it wasn't like a flash because it, was, it stayed for quite a wee while, and the clouds, everything went orange and... Then quite often along with it, there was an explosion. There was a bang. And and this, when I get told by my parents, well, that was, it's the steelwork this is coming from. They were tipping slag, uh, slag down to the loch, Coburnie Loch. So it turns out the flash was that, or the, the light sky lighting up was that. But then the explosion, because sound travels, you know, as speedy as, uh, as, as light, then you got to bang later, and you know, so that. But that used to be a regular occurrence. The whole valley would light up red and orange, again. and it was spectacular. It really was just for, and it, it was quite silent too. And then flared up, and then there was this explosion. And the explosion was if there was any metal, liquid metal, in the slag, and it get trapped under the water, the loch. Yeah, that's what causes the explosion, kind of. I always remember that as never thinking that one day I would be in charge of all that. Thank you so much for listening to the Community Campfires podcast, which has come to you today from North Ayrshire. Community Campfires is a Scottish Book Trust project in partnership with North Ayrshire Libraries, Inverclyde Libraries, on Fife and Western Isles Libraries and is supported by the Year of Scotland Stories. The music was by Zakhar Valaha. In our next podcast, we'll be driving a few miles north to Port Glasgow and Greenock and we'll see you there.